The other day you posted this picture of yourself with a ring and your watch. What was that about? Okay, so I was at my friend Kate's office mm-hmm. and uh, I, I wore a watch la, for the gathering that we had. And she passed me one of her rings that she keeps in her office and, and just told me to, to wear it because uh, one of our friends, Nick, brought along his girlfriend for the first time. Mm-hmm. So the two girls found out that they both liked jewelry a lot and they started talking about rings. And they started showing each other which rings they have in their collection. And my friend Kate took out her rings that she keeps in her office. And she passed me one to wear. And then everybody thought that it would be funny if I wore the ring on my finger and took a picture and posted it on Twitter with a funny caption so that people thought that I was getting proposed to or some I was proposing to my girlfriend. That's what I thought. I thought you were proposing to your girlfriend and then like you just... Like, wanted to give everyone a preview or something. But but you did notice that that was my hand, right? Yeah, yeah, because it was your watch. Your watch is like, I mean, it's not small, but like, I don't think you would let someone else wear your watch. Yeah, so so it was a joke, and uh, I was just trying to bait everyone into thinking that I did a thing where I proposed to my girlfriend. <laughs> and I think my girlfriend will be listening to this podcast, so uh, no, <laughs> it's not, not for you, false alarm. Uh, this is a spoiler-free podcast, don't worry. But I'm surprised that the ring even fit. Yeah, so uh, I tried it on the other hand. So uh, if you didn't know, I'm uh, right-hand dominant. So first, I tried it on the right hand, and my ring knuckle was a bit too large, so so it wasn't safe to you know try to force it in. If not, uh, it could get stuck, right? Yep. But on my left finger, it surprisingly fit very nicely. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, my friend Kate and I have the same... Uh, ring finger sizes. Yeah, that's some coincidence. I like, don't even think about it. Have you gotten a ring stuck on your finger before? Oh yeah, I, I, I did when I was younger. I would play with my mom's jewelry, right? Like any inquisitive young boy would. And uh, instead of putting it in the ring finger, I would put it in like the middle finger because m- my hands were smaller back then. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was one time where uh, one of her jade rings got stuck and uh, we tried very hard and uh, you know we there are many tricks to try and get the ring out. You you know you can use soap and water, you can use uh dental floss. I I've seen dental floss. Mm. Yeah. So it was stuck for a while, and after that we we just kind of like let it be uh, because it was starting to swell, mm. and you know swelling makes it worse, right? So we we kind of let it be, and uh, after a while I washed it under cold water, and my hand was just small enough to slip the ring out. And uh, from then on, I never really played with my mom's rings ever again. Oh, shit. I'm not really a ring guy because, like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I use my hands for. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> okay, like, I played the drums, right? Then, like, I was doing kendo back in uni. So, like, I would always have to take off a ring in order to do those activities, right? As you can keep them on, but you fatigue your hands after a while. It gets a bit uncomfortable. Right, and and the grip doesn't grip as well, right? With a ring on. Yeah, I guess. And also, like, you might scratch it over time. You know, those micro-scratches. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the worst. Yeah, so, like, I, I don't really... I don't even know, like, if in future, like, I want to, like, wear a ring, like, even if I get married. It's like, is there, like, some alternative that we can do? Yeah, you can get a tattoo, or, or you can wear it around your neck. Like, people who are in the construction uh, industry, because... 
there have been cases where rings can get trapped in machinery and then you lose a finger. Or, you know, for hygiene, like some professions like in F&B or you know, as a doctor, yeah, if yeah, you are okay. a surgeon, right, you, you definitely can't have any rings on your hand. Yeah. Or, or like if you work like near like metal detectors, right? Oh yeah, that's true. That's not a safety thing, it's just a troublesome thing. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah, probably, probably do the whole uh, wear around your neck thing because if I get a tattoo, right, then if I go to Japan next time, then I won't be able to go to a lot of like the hot springs. Oh right, I heard that they have some strict regulations about that, right? In-house rules or something. Yeah, it, it's mostly because they associate anyone with any tattoo to be like part of a mafia. Oh. So, uh, which is kind of ridiculous. Because like, uh, if you're like some foreigner, then you have like a tattoo of like just like a word, right? It's not the same kind of tattoo as like, you know, the uh, huge dragon or huge tiger. Yeah, what about um, ladies with uh, eyebrow embroidery? I understand that that's kind of like a cosmetic tattoo to replace uh, the lost eyebrow hairs. So are they going to be banned from entering the hot springs as well? Firstly, uh, they will have to be spotted. Like you have okay. to know that they, they have it. But then, I, I, no, no I, I definitely don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> that would be quite funny. Like I can imagine some auntie going into the hot spring as a tourist, right? And then the hot spring owner is like, no, no Yakuza. Oh, oh my. Um, yeah, my head just hurts like thinking about that. But like, it's definitely happened before, right? Like a lot of the service staff there are like trained to follow a script, right? So if you kind of deviate from the script a bit, like you try to ask for an exception, right? And then they will go like service.exe has stopped working. <laughs> so uh their customer service is great, but uh try not to ask for exceptions if you can. Right, the the AI isn't uh very well trained yet, so we have to be kind on them. It's not even an AI, it's just a machine. <laughs> IFTTT, if this then that, but then yeah. not enough branches then cannot. You bought a watch in Switzerland, right? Yeah, I did. So um, in 2019, I went on a trip to Switzerland and I went to this town called Luzern. It's actually uh, surrounded by a very beautiful lake and mountain. So you can imagine, right, you, when you're in Switzerland, pretty much... Mount, you see mountain after mountain and, and it's just so very therapeutic for your soul especially since you know you and I we are both uh, city boys right from this small and congested island called Singapore mm-hmm. and seeing this kind of natural views it really it really does something to to your soul la, and, and you feel like wow the world is so big and so beautiful and why are we you know so concerned about you know, being trapped in the red race. And at the same time, I also chanced upon my dream watch, my first dream watch at a boutique in Luzerne. And I kind of like Frank Muller's because my army friend, Joey, he he was uh, the one who actually got me into this whole luxury watch thing. When he was 21, his mother bought him uh, a Frank Muller. A conquistador. Initially, I wasn't very, you know, a, a fond of it because it has an odd shape. Frank Muller's they have this ovalish shape. It's a tonal shape, and the usual luxury watches that you see they generally have round faces. 
for example Rolex, uh, Omega, Hublot, they're generally round faces and round face watches are what people generally see every day. So to have seen a tonneau watch for the first time, it, it was quite unusual. Uh, but I kind of grew to like it because it's a very special shape and ultimately as I started to get more interested in the world of luxury watches, I realized that you don't have to follow what everybody likes. You can have your own style and it just happens that my style was the unusual tonneau shape. So you saw that watch in the boutique? Yeah. Then uh, because I was a tourist, I wanted to try it on. You know, if you didn't want it, you can just uh, put it back and, and walk away, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do it in Singapore, you feel like, uh, will the salesperson judge me for doing that? So if you are a tourist in a foreign country, you have less reservations about doing such a thing. Mm-hmm. And Switzerland is also the home of master watch making. So I took the chance to explore and it just happens that that boutique had the exact same model that I liked. So it's a it's a Frank Muller. The thing about Frank Muller watches is their model numbers are just a bunch of letters and numbers. So for example, the one that I bought was TTBR5NV45SCDT. So you know it doesn't make sense. But I guess you can identify it by the kind of metals that it's made with. So for my watch, it's made with titanium and it has a rose gold trim. Ah, I see, I see. That naming scheme reminds me of like how badly Sony names their headphones. Like, you know, the famous ones, I think it's something, what, WMX1000TR something, something. And then the headphones are like, WTX or something like that is just I just nobody has time to remember that. I think they were probably named by someone with zero creativity. Maybe the engineering department uh, came up with the names because it's uh, totally uh, you know you you won't even understand what the watch is trying to tell you about itself. Yeah, from the series of letters and numbers. It's almost like they are trying to fit the you know the e-commerce keywords into the model name. Right, just like spam, <laughs> see what sticks, right? Yeah, but so then you tried the watch on, right? Did the staff pressure you to pay, to buy it? Sorry. So I noticed that the the salespeople at the watch shop, they come in a, a, a number of nationalities. Of course, the, increasingly there are a lot of Chinese-speaking tourists. Mm-hmm. So the retailers also cater a dedicated Chinese-speaking sales representative so that they can sell the products to this group of stereotypically wealthy, novu-rich people mm. who will come into the store and just like sweep up the whole aisle of all the luxury watches. Right. Yeah, so I was approached by one such lady um, and it turns out that she was actually Malaysian Ooh. and she's not uh, Chinese. Yeah, so... This uh, Malaysian lady came to try and show me the the pieces that they have. So I was on a solo trip. Being uh, alone in a foreign country, you you kind of miss uh, the the kinship once in a while, Mm -hmm. like something familiar. And because Singapore has a large number of Malaysians, as well as, you know, half my family is actually from Malaysia, uh, I I kind of like had 
a little bit of a a bond with this uh, sales lady. Mm. So I pointed out what watch I I was looking at, and she she took it out for me and let me try it on, and and the whole process was really enjoyable. There was no pressure to make a purchase, and whatever you said, right, they would just agree with you because I I don't think they have their own strong opinions. They would just want to make you feel so good about the purchase that you're gonna make. You know, this is the most perfect watch for you. Uh, they will try and spin their sales pitch to to make you feel like you really made the right choice. Yeah, I guess the sales tactic is a bit different when the magnitude of the price is so high, right? It's like almost like selling a car rather than a watch. I think for the price that you pay for some of these luxury watches, right, you can buy a decent car in a country like maybe America, or definitely not in Singapore. Yeah, yep. yep. Yeah. It feels like luxury watch collection is not as popular amongst like uh, millennials. I-, I think many people have probably, you know, like one or two dress watches, maybe like something like from a Seiko or like a, a Rolex and like a couple of people might want a, like a Frank Muller. But I don't really know anyone who is like posting about watches the same way that someone might post about, you know, like PC parts, like latest phone, that kind of thing. I again it's like apples and oranges, lah, but like I'm just noting this observation. The world of luxury watch collecting is it's a rich man's hobby, lah. Mm. So, you know, for millennials or you know, young people who are uh, professionals around our age, usually you have one they call it the Grail, Grail watch, like Holy Grail. Hmm. And the rest of the watches are for, you know, daily wear or rotation. So for a while, I was thinking whether I should make uh, this Frank Muller watch my Grail watch. But then I thought about, you know, I'm spending so much money on it. I should make the most out of it, maximize my use of it before it gets like old and spoiled or... or I don't like it anymore. And so it became my daily wear for about a year until I got my uh, Apple Watch, which I use for fitness tracking. Yeah. So I'm someone who does not care for luxury watches at all, right? Like, like I, I have one, like a grail watch that my parents gave me for my 21st birthday. Wow, what, what was it? Uh, wait, uh, let me check the, the model. I think you probably got a Submariner, right? Rolex Submariner. Rolex Mugols. Oh. Is that how you pronounce okay. it? Mugols? I think so. Yeah, but in, anyway, I only wear it for certain occasions like um, like weddings or uh, fancy parties of which I've probably been to like only like one or two. So in the end, what actually tipped you over and made you buy the watch? So one of their sales pitch is that, you know, you are in Switzerland, the country where luxury watches are made. So why not, you know, get yourself a memorable memento that you can have a story to tell in the future. And, you know, it's, it's not a small sum of money. So I was thinking, yeah, you know, I kind of like the, the, the watch and I had a strong feeling that I would eventually buy it. But I wasn't sure if I would buy it there and then, or I would, you know, buy it at duty free in, in an airport or something. So so I quickly sent out a uh, an SOS tweet 
um, and, and some pictures of the of the watches on Twitter. And um, my my good friend Leno, who is a seasoned veteran in the luxury watch interest group, he he sent me an article almost immediately to to kind of uh, prompt me on like what I can do uh, when I'm buying a such a watch at a boutique. So one of the things is that uh, you don't be afraid to negotiate for a good price because the markups on luxury watches are crazy high and chances are the boutiques have already factored that into account and they already are willing to give you a massive discount uh, as long as you know you do the negotiating dance that everybody does when you want to get a discount oh yeah so the the sticker price for my watch is I think over 8,800 Swiss francs. So that's about 1,300, no, sorry, 13,000 Singapore dollars. Ouch. Yeah, so uh, firstly, my advice to any listeners out there who are interested in buying luxury watches is that you do not pay the sticker price at all. So step one, don't accept the sticker price, okay? And I I was trying to get uh, as good a price as I can for this watch. So I compared it with another watch. And the sales staff also talked to me about some of the uh, advantages of the other watch. Mm-hmm. Just for information, the other watch was a Switzerland edition of the Frank Muller Vanguard. So it's actually... Instead of the silver and rose gold of uh, the titanium version, theirs is black steel and red trim, oh. which actually look quite badass if uh, you ask me. How much is the sticker price in Singapore? So um, I went to the Marina Bay Sands website to check, right? Because I, I didn't really want to go inside a physical shop. Mm-hmm. And on the Marina Bay Sands website, it says 13000 $675. Ah, okay. It's like a 5% savings. No, sorry. That's like 5% more expensive. Yeah. Oh, but it's, I mean, it's a couple hundred bucks. So the sticker price was 8,800 Swiss francs and you bargained down? Yeah, so the, the lady was very upfront. You know, she, she gave me a massive discount uh, at the at offset. I can't remember how much it was, but it was quite substantial. And I, I still looked hesitant. And I still started to um, point out like minor flaws here and there. Like, you know, I'm not really sure if I want it. Uh, maybe I'll come back uh, tomorrow or something, you know. And then they will try and persuade you to stay and they will try and give you, this is the best price that they can give you. You know, they, they will say this, those the same words and everything. And I finally got it at um, 10,600 Singapore dollars. So that would make it 7,200 Swiss francs. Wow, that's like a 20% discount. Yeah, it, it was quite a hefty discount. And uh, I walked away feeling much happier because uh, I think everybody feels like they, you know, they are winner if they manage to get a good deal out of a, an expensive product. Yeah, I mean, I hope that sales staff also got a decent commission out of you. I'm sure she did. She was like smiling ear to ear. 
it's like crazy right then you what is the true or rather what's the lowest price that they could afford to sell it if the markup is so high wow. I, i'm sure it only cost them like one or two thousand dollars to make um, you know, I actually I, I I wouldn't want to hazard a guess, but uh, I I would think that such products have a very high margin, mainly because of the image that they want to portray, and as well as uh, the exclusivity that owning such a product can provide the owner. Is that the most expensive item you ever had to buy? It was in my then. 27 years of existence it was the most i've ever paid for a single purchase it's not the same but like the closest thing i ever had to paying paying that kind of money was like to when i was trying to change stockbrokers and then they didn't let me transfer the stocks directly so i had to quickly sell and rebuy the stocks again wow why, why, why did they not let you transfer okay because because i bought the etf on the bank savings plan so they make you put in some money every month and then they they buy on your behalf but then i wanted to use this like other trading platform like fsm1 so eventually i just sold off all my holdings and then transferred like i think thirteen thousand dollars to the fsm account and then i bought immediately wow although my position didn't change at all right but that whole process of like suddenly selling uh, shifting the money over and buying again. It felt like I was actually holding an envelope full of that cash and then I had to like physically deliver it someplace. And you had to pay a transaction fee for it? Uh, there weren't transaction fees except the, the buying fee for the FSM1 platform. Can you believe people used to be paid in cash, in envelopes? Yeah, that was uh, an ancient time, man. Now I don't even buy my lunch with cash. I just everything is just digital and cashless. Well, <laughs> when I was younger, I I had this experience where my friend wanted to withdraw cash right from mm-hmm. the ATM. So we followed him there, and then we were kind of waiting for him to you know choose the account, go through the different pages and stuff, right? Then when it came to the time where you had to choose the amount of money to withdraw, right? Uh, one of the shortcut buttons was like $1,000. Wow. And then a classmate of mine just hit that button. <laughs> and and without confirming anything, right, the ATM was like, okay, here you go. Here's $1,000, you 17-year-old boy. Yeah, I think the default daily withdrawal limit is $2,000. So he, you, your friend could have pressed the button one more time, right, without triggering his uh, daily withdrawal limit. But, but it, so he has he just this stack of cash that he had to carry around with him while he searched for a cash deposit machine. Oh no. Like, I, I feel a bit stressed out carrying like, you know, 200, 300 bucks nowadays. I can't imagine like how he must have felt at the time. It feels like they should put a, are you sure you want to withdraw $1,000 in cash? Yeah, they should put a, a, a prompt to confirm your decision in case you pressed it accidentally. Especially in the last three, four years. The variety of cashless payments have definitely increased and I basically don't even need to use cash even at my local uh, food court. On this topic, a couple of years ago, I remember I was watching a movie in the cinema and there was this DBS advertisement that came up and the advertisement was about live more bankless and they were trying to phase out physical ATMs and, and the such. And I was thinking... 
why is this, you know, the, the biggest bank in Singapore, why are they heading towards such a direction where they're making it more difficult for their bank account holders to draw and uh, deposit cash? And today, looking back at, you know, what I thought about it at the time, I feel like, wow, they were really ahead of the curve. You know, now, almost all merchants, in fact, even hawkers, right, they also accept cashless payments nowadays. Uh, I think mm-hmm. they really made the right decision uh, all those years back to have this targeted drive to reduce the amount of physical banking that uh, is being done. And not only does it increase the profit for them, it also actually makes a lot more sense for the consumers, even if we didn't know it at that time. Yeah, there's a lot of these hidden costs that comes with uh, having to deal with cash, right? Number one, you have to physically transport the cash to the ATMs. Number two, you have to buff security at the ATMs. Like you have to make them physically hard to break into. You've got to put cameras. And then you also have to supply electricity and the security software inside the thing. I think like one of the first things you learn in uh, operations management when you go to business school, right, is like the ATM problem. Hey listeners. Upon editing this section of the episode, I realized that I had totally forgotten what the name of the concept was. Uh, It's actually called the news vendor model, not the ATM problem. Yeah, it's been a while since I studied that. So please don't gouge your eyes out as you listen to me ramble about an operations problem that I haven't touched in over 8 years now. Alright, back to the show. Oh, what's the ATM problem? So the ATM problem is basically just a, a maths problem where you calculate how much money you need to load up in an ATM, right? Based on the amount of cash that uh, is withdrawn every day. Right. And also based on the cost of operating each ATM. I, I mean, even if you say like the cost of operating an ATM every day, the net cost is something like what? right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's more. Okay. Mostly because of the having to move the money in with the security staff. But then you multiply it by the the hundreds of ATMs like across the island, right? I'm sure, I'm pretty sure the banks would rather do without. Yeah, I think so too. One of the other problems that comes with like handling cash is the amount of time you use to actually handle and count the cash. I tried to convince people about this before, but like no one would like believe me. But I think the hawkers who've kind of uh, picked up the cashless payment, right? Whether it be QR or like your credit card taps, right? They suddenly realize that, oh, I don't have to, you know, receive a 10 or $50 note from someone and then fish for the right number of notes and then fish for the right number of coins and then I hand it over to the person. I can immediately just like, okay, next. Can I have the next order, please? Yeah, they can make their operations more streamlined by pressing a button. They, the right amount would pop up for the customer to pay via their phone or their watch or a card or something. It just makes sense. Yeah, and you know that the money that they are paying you is definitely correct if it's the electronic method. Yeah, you know, they will not give you more change or less change. So it reduces the accounting error in the future where they find 30 cents that they can't account for. <laughs> 
and it's like 30 cents or like you know a couple of dollars right it's not mm. like 300 dollars where it matters enough that you would try to resolve it i, I wonder what the, like auditing a hawker business is like do they even audit hawkers i i think they do right like they have to pay they have to declare how much profit they made so i know that in food courts there's a centralized POS system which tracks the daily sales and for a lot of F&B outlets part of their rent comes from percentage of sales it could be 2% of sales or something like that okay la, so that it's all properly tracked in the POS when they input it in and stuff like that yeah that makes sense oh there's this uh, new or well, not new but like 3 hours ago Channel News Asia talked about this woman who admits to killing her mate and starving her to 24 kilos. What the hell? 24? What the heck is this? Let me find that article. Five months into her new mate's employment, a woman began abusing the domestic helper from Myanmar, punching and stamping on her and starving her until she was only 24 kg. In the days before the 24-year-old victim died of brain injury with severe blunt trauma to her neck, she was starved and tied to a window grill at night and assaulted if she tried to rummage for food from the dustbin. Oh my goodness. This is honestly really disgusting. I, I, I don't even know like how people you know, make the decision to not just you know, physically abuse but also to violently restrain someone and then like, to actively starve them. I've noticed that um, there are some employers who you know, employ domestic helpers and just because you know they are giving these domestic helpers a roof over their head, three meals a day. Sometimes some of them don't even give them three meals a day. You know they really treat the helpers like their servants. You know, and I think it's really not right. I I don't understand why the conscience doesn't prick at them to treat people like human beings, give them the rest, give them a break, take care of them in as much as they are taking care of you and your family. I'm not sure what it is with these kind of abusive employers. Okay, I think firstly, the maid employment phenomenon is like only restricted to a few countries like uh, Singapore, like some places in the Middle East. Hong Kong. I, I think some of the other Southeast Asian countries, if you're from a rich family, you do have like a live-in maid. Right, I, I think so too. Yeah, but you don't have the same scale of like or the frequency of having all these live-in mates. I think like a large percentage of Singaporeans grew up like with some sort of domestic helper. Yeah, especially in our generation. Our parents' generation was more of like a communal approach to child rearing, where neighbours would help each other look after the kids, you know, because they are all in kampongs lah. Yeah, but once we all flattered up, right, I think people started to keep more to themselves. Increasingly, I see that people around our generation, or even the, uh, the, the newer generations who are having kids, they do have to employ helpers because somehow there's just too much to be done in 24 hours to take care of a family. Yeah, um, I actually was taken care of by not even my grandfather, but like my grandfather's neighbours. And then after that, I was uh, moved to, I think, one of my aunts or something. But then this all happened in the span of, I believe it was a few months. But then because these people got busy, right? So my parents literally saw their options 
go to zero. And so they had to employ domestic help for childcare because they were both working. I think the, the main thing is because both parents are working. Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenon increasingly more common nowadays where both parents have to work uh, in order to give a comfortable life to the whole family. La. In my entire experience, right, I never had the thought of like trying to abuse my mate. And I, I mean, neither have my parents. We, we treated our mates like fairly nicely, I think. Like not, not so much that we would be like, you know, very chummy with them as family. But it's almost like this gray area between like family member and employee. Yeah, because they're living in with you, right? So inevitably, you start to see them as part of your family. Even if, you know, you try to maintain an employee-employer boundary, but it's inevitable to, especially for young children, to grow fond of their helpers because their helpers are the ones who have been, you know, uh, getting food for them, uh, getting them ready for school, picking them up from school and so on. There's a lot of shared experiences uh, with helpers. So, like, given the kind of contact time that helpers might have with, you know, the children or aged grandparents, right? Like, you want to make sure that they are kind of in a good physical and mental health, much in the way that us as employees would expect our employers to pay us regularly and offer us, like, some sort of dignity, right? If not, we're just like, ah, fuck this shit, I'm just going to quit this place, right? But because the helpers don't have this option, so if they get abused, they just have to pull up with it. Yeah, increasingly, I do think that, you know, with the prevalence of mobile phones and social media pages, that these uh, young domestic helpers, they are more able to find help and community in a foreign country like Singapore and to know more of their rights. Like, there's also a lot of outreach programs by... um, women's groups uh, or groups that are dealing with uh, transient workers who are Mm. trying to educate them that, you know, you have your rights. You are supposed to get salary, regular salary, uh, sufficient rest, sufficient food. And I think this is an important step in Singapore's, you know, overall journey as we try to improve our productivity across all metrics. But at the same time, we also have to show a bit of compassion to the people who are leaving behind their own families to come and take care of your family so that your life can be easier. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure like where that kind of entitlement or that view of these domestic workers being like almost subhuman comes from. You know, it's these families or these abusers, they... They only get caught like when a deed is done because there's no monitoring, there's no auditing of like how they are treating their their mates on a regular basis, right? Yeah, there's no framework for the employees to, to kind of gauge their experiences because every family is different. Some families have more uh, money and are able to provide more for the helpers. I've seen helpers who are wearing... I guess, past season uh, high-end luxury clothes as well, like a t-shirt from Dior or something. I'm not sure if it's fake or their employer gave it to them or how they got it, but I, I have seen it in, in real life myself. And I've also seen that some 
helpers like the one that we are talking about from the news who have been denied even the basic necessities like nourishment, food, rest and it, it was just such a big discrepancy in the experience of transient worker in Singapore. You know, Singaporeans underestimate the number of like domestic helpers that there are. My guess for why there's no regular policing of their employers is because there's just too many of them. Let me go find the data. I think there's like three to 500,000 in Singapore. Okay, so I'm at the MOM website now. Uh, as of June 2020, there are 252,600 work permit holders under the Foreign Domestic Workers Scheme in Singapore. And if Singapore has a population of 5 million, so that would be about 5% of Singapore. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, that's potentially like 252,000 cases that MOM would have to check regularly if they were made to check regularly, right? I think the enforcement that they can do is also quite limited because how many officers can they employ? And, and are they going to empower the officers to you know, search every Singaporean who employs a helper, uh, search their homes and confirms that you know, they comply to some kind of a guideline? I think ultimately how these cases of abuse are discovered is via complaints either by the maids themselves to the agencies or complaints to the police. Right, or sometimes like the neighbours also can kind of sense that something is amiss. Yeah, that as well. Then again, the kind of recourse and the legal aid they can receive is probably a lot more limited compared to if you were like a regular citizen, partially because of financial considerations. Yeah, I think so. Uh, in fact, the Party Liani case, which happened quite recently, it was in limbo for such a long time because number one, she did not plead guilty as she should uh, not have done because she is not guilty of a crime that she didn't commit. And secondly was she didn't have the funds to claim trial and there were very few pro bono lawyers who wanted to take up her case until that particular lawyer came along. Yeah, I mean, regardless of what happened, like I'm, I'm happy that she doesn't have to pay undue damages and she actually gets some compensation for the time she spent in the trial. Because even if, you know, you, you manage to successfully sue your employer and you get a pro bono lawyer, right? Singapore's courts are not punitive. So you can't expect to be paid out a, a sum that would be beyond your basic ex expenses for the amount of time that you spend fighting the case and also the amount of time you spend in anguish. So even if you win, right, you might still feel upset. I'm not sure how accurate this is, but I've heard that if you are being detained on trial and you can't afford bail, you will just be in the lockup without any end in sight. And at the end of the day, if it was determined that you are innocent, you do not get the days back. You do not get any form of compensation for the, the time that you have spent in the lockup, which I feel is, is quite sad. Lah. That's crazy because if the employer terminates that domestic helper's employment while she is in remand, right, then she's technically an illegal alien after a while. <laughs> does, she, does she get merely deported? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure as well. But I think 
she probably would be deported at the end of at the conclusion of the trial, you know, or if she decides to plead guilty and serve out the time or, or whatever. Yeah, but I think more can be done to really help these people who have given up their own families to come to Singapore to earn a better life. And we should not just treat them like they are lesser than or slaves that we can abuse for our pleasure. It's it's really quite sickening to read. Yeah, there there are levels to it, right? Like you can treat your your mate very nicely like family. You can view her as just a pure professional. You can dislike her but still put up with her. And then there's still such a long way to go before you even start to abuse and take away like her human rights. It's a real shame that it happens even now. Whenever there's a wave of uh, those cases appearing in court, right? Like I can't help but feel pissed off. Yeah, you and I both. Because it's just not right. I think somebody could have intervened. The signs would be there, you know. If uh, she has a weekend friends who she hangs out with, and one day she stops hanging out, or one day she comes out, and it seems like she has some unexplainable bruises, then I think those should be the warning signs that should be acted upon. But ultimately, the onus is on the employers to just be decent human beings. It seems like a tall order for many people. I don't know. It's a solution for us to just employ less foreign domestic workers. I think the bigger picture is that we have to try and be more self-sufficient. If the concern is the family household chores, I think we can try and engage part-time helpers who you know, come in for two hours a week to do some of the housework. Uh, if the concern is you know, taking care of elderly parents, which I'm starting to see that you know, it's, it's becoming a more and more uh, serious problem, then perhaps we should have dedicated facilities to actually take care of the needs of our elderly parents rather than to just dump the entire responsibility of care to a foreign domestic worker mm. who may not be adequately skilled to understand you know, the complexities of dealing with uh, frustrated and grumpy elderly and their numerous needs. Uh, nor is it fair to unload the entire burden of a fa- entire family to just one young lady from uh, distant shores. I think we need to calibrate of our expectations for what these people can do for us. Like even if it's just helping uh, with chores, some of the more ridiculous things I've heard are like one domestic helper for like you know a six thousand square foot or ten thousand square foot bungalow. Wow. So it's like, how on earth are you going to keep all that clean and order if you're just one person? I, I think a lot of helpers struggle with just 1,000 square foot apartment HDB, right? Yeah. In fact, I think there are some uh, families who employ more than one helper because of the sheer amount of workload that they have. Yeah, but back to your point about um, you know, having some sort of like centralized facility to help with elder care needs. I, I mean, I, I don't think it needs to be a sort of like daycare or stuff, but, uh, you know, the staff there, even if they are foreign, you know, could be properly trained to 
handle the needs of like the elderly and then therefore you can scale the operation up to make more sense rather than you have like one human being for every household with an elderly person which is not going to be tenable in 20 30 years time so for a lot of singaporean families the financial constraints undoubtedly force them to take on this uh, path where they employ a foreign helper simply because it's much cheaper to upkeep a helper that is around 24-7 and who can also do other simple tasks like taking, uh, making the house clean as well as uh, the major task of taking care of an elderly grandparent or parent. Yeah, again, the job scope of the domestic helper is not supposed to be, but it ends up being infinite. Yeah, there's a, there's a term for this, it's called mission creep, where your scope keeps getting enlarged beyond the original intention until it becomes like a monster. I think one thing that some of my neighbors do is that they get their helpers to wash their cars, which I think is like, oh my goodness, just wash your own car. Like it's, it's your baby, right? Then like you're letting someone else like wash it. Would you let your domestic helper clean your watch? Uh, I probably would not. I, I would want to take care of it myself. Yeah. So there seems to be, you know, a need to limit the scope of their work. Never mind that that's basically going to be, be unenforceable. But I think if enough employers can get that in their head, then we can reduce the kind of abuse cases by a certain percentage, and that's something. Yeah, every step in the right direction is a positive step. But yeah, I guess um, it's a super tricky thing, and I don't know if completely cutting them off from this option of a career is the best thing to do. Because compared to some other countries, on average, they have it pretty good here. And if it's of relatively low cost to us, right, uh, and if they can be, you know, someone that we can get along with in the family, then yeah, why not, right? It only makes sense. Yeah, I think the approach, you know, as with a lot of approaches in Singapore, is that maybe we should look into making the employers go for a course and to understand that what they can and cannot expect the foreign domestic workers to do and the kind of treatment that they should be giving the foreign domestic workers when they are a guest worker in their home. Yeah, I think that's definitely a start. Like, only if they pass a course, then they can employ a bit. Very Singaporean. Alright, okay, I think this is a good place to end. Uh, okay, thank you guys for listening. Uh, today we had Kiwi on a podcast and we talked about luxury watches and domestic made issues in Singapore. Please follow us on our social media, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at BTHPodSG or at BTHPodcastSG. Look for our dark blue logo. Links are all in the show notes. Alright, you have any last words for our listeners? If you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, my handle is Kiwi, K-E-E-W-5-E. So that's K-E-E-W-E-E-E-E-E, Kiwi. <laughs> okay, I'll put that in the show notes. I can never remember for the life of me like how many E's there are. <laughs> all the E's. Yeah, all the E's. 
Right, okay. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Kiwi. Bye. Bye.